I'm so excited to have our next amazing guest. Um, he, he is super Vietnamese. Okay. His name is Kai Win. Okay. Winning isn't his name, people. Okay. He's an incredible comedian. He is a host of an amazing podcast called The Patter Room. Uh, so welcome the very handsome Vietnamese and the very funny Kai Win. How are you doing, Kai? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So you, uh, you do uh, something called Viet for Life, like with P-H-O. Uh, can you mm-hmm. explain what that is? That came about because uh, I, I grew up, uh, I also grew up Jewish. So a lot of my, you know, quote unquote, white friends would yeah. pronounce it pho, <laughs> you know? So, you know, in Vietnamese, we call it pho um, and, and a lot of people would mispronounce it. And I basically just took a, a spin on that and just called it Viet for life because they just kept pronouncing it like that. That's awesome. So you said you were Jewish. Like what? I'm confused. I yeah. So I was, um. I was raised um, Catholic uh, in a Catholic Vietnamese family. Um, I was kicked out when I was about 14 um, because they were kind of like diehard Catholic zealots, um, you know, very strict rules. And they were going to church almost every single day. And um, I I eventually went on my own at 14, worked full time and then uh, kind of lived out of my car for about a year and a half. And then um, luckily was was adopted and taken in by a Jewish family when I was about 16. Nuts. Wow. That's, that's an incredible story. So do you feel more Vietnamese or Jewish or like, what were some of the cultural influences in your life? That's a very interesting question because I mean, obviously I grew up with Vietnamese influence. Um, once I basically left my house, uh, that stopped immediately there. So, um, Essentially, growing up from 15 and on, I was surrounded by Jewish people and, and other generally white people. Um, so a lot of my business skill sets and um, kind of like other other skills come from that community. Um, I think it's very much different when you compare it to the Vietnamese community, uh, where it's kind of like, you know, it's guarded. You kind of stick with each other. Yes. Uh, whereas like the Jewish community, obviously, is, is very business oriented and, you know, is about, uh, you know, making money and family oriented and uh, scaling the business to the next generation. So uh, very, very contrasting um, kind of a viewpoints. Amazing. So you say you're kicked out at 15. And you look super young right now, so I don't know if you're 18 or 80. So can you tell us, like, what did you do from 15 till now? Well, when I was 16, I essentially started working for my Jewish father um, and uh, essentially ran a portion of his business. Uh, He ran a a packaging company. Yeah, he he ran the largest private uh, contract packaging company in the West Coast. Um, and, uh, I was very fortunate. Um, you know, I came in and, um, I didn't ask for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, I was kind of stubborn in the beginning. I was like, I don't want anything. I don't need money this and that, you know, they, they supplied me with like a, a home and food and all that stuff. So that was, you know, I was grateful enough for that. But the one thing I did get out of it that was very valuable was, uh, the, the, the ability to work for him and learn from him. And, um, I remember the first job uh, I came in was he, you know, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to run a business. So he essentially bought two businesses and then made me run them. What? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Are you guys looking for an Asian daughter? Uh, <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I promise I can marry up and explain and the family business. Oh my God, that's, <laughs> that's the game plan, right? Yeah, right. It's like that's that's. I was gonna ask you about that. Um, so that's incredible. So like, now you do stand up comedy. So that's that's amazing. So like, what made you decide to go into this degenerate art form when you had everything set up for you for life? I'm just. It's it's weird because uh, <laughs> I'll give you the short story. I mean, the, the short answer is uh, so. I'm a huge introvert and I know a lot of comedians that, you know, the good comedians are generally introverts. And, uh, if you had asked me like 10 years ago that I would be doing stand up comedy, I would laugh at you, you <laughs> yeah. know? Um, and I think part of that journey is kind of like learning from my Jewish father and then learning, uh, on wall street to do sales and, and sales was something I didn't have any skill set in. 
And um, I started raising capital, which meant you had to network with a ton of people, right? Um, and you had to kind of be a closer, so to speak. Yeah. And so that kind of gave me the confidence of like doing presentations, speaking in front of a crowd, uh, just talking to people in general. Um, and it was still a lot of work for me because I was an introvert, but it, I did learn that skill set. So um, I think I was in Boston and I, I was dating this girl and uh, we were on this vacation trip and she was like, you know, you're pretty funny. Like, why don't you uh, try stand up comedy? And I kind of laughed. And then she said, just tell me a couple jokes here. So I just kind of riffed off a little bit. And then she was just cracking up. We were both cracking up. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'd always been a fan of comedy growing up. So. And then uh, that kind of seeded a little bit. I then moved to Phoenix, where I started um, doing volunteer work for the United Way. And I met a woman named Angie. And she was the director of uh, a program here in Phoenix for the United Way. And she was like, I'm from from Chicago. And I was like, wow, two of my favorite comics are from Chicago, Dion Cole and Hannibal Buress. Yeah. And so so she said, well, Hannibal Buress is my younger brother. Would you like to come to the show and meet him? And I was like, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I went to a show. I think it was a show writer right after he had the uh, birthday uh, show with um, um, Eric Andre. And, uh, yeah, I went backstage pretty much hung out with him, talked with him. We didn't talk about any comedy related. It was more like, you know, the nonprofit stuff we were doing and the volunteer work. And then I just slipped in, you know, a little question. I was like, Hey, you know, someone mentioned I should do stand up comedy. Like, what do you think? You know? And he just said, this, this is basically what he said, not in these words, but this is basically what he said. He said, listen, I used to go to open mics all the time. There used to be about 45 people in line. 44 of them should not even be there. And, uh, and he's like, if you still want to do it after knowing that, then comedy is for you. Oh, so what did you think when he said that? Well, I, you mean, I'm a numbers guy. So I'm like, that's pretty low statistics, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like the stubborn type. And I, you know, I, I, I like challenges. I like getting out of my comfort zone. And if... This is the definition of getting out of your comfort zone, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember going to my first open mic. I went to the wrong one because I didn't know there were open mics that did with music. So I, I think I remember I walked into a bar and I was like, hey, I'm here for the open mic. And he's like, what instrument do you play? And I was like, uh, my, my throat? I don't know. <laughs> he's like, dude, this is a musical open mic. <laughs> So that was my experience, oh, first experience with open mic. Yeah. So many musicians, they don't even care. They just go to the comedy open mics anyways. Okay, so sorry. I just had to. <laughs> how, how was that experience for you? How, what was your, yeah, what was it like? Well, I ended up looking online and, uh, and finding some resources. And I went to my first open mic. Uh, it's, a gut, it's a place called Bridget's Last Laugh. Amazing place. Very small room, very intimate room run by a guy named John Henry who's been in the Phoenix scene for a very long time. And he was, he was, I I think I came there like two hours early and I helped him set up and all this stuff. And he found out it was my first time. So he was very, very uh, gracious in helping me. Like he was like, Hey, go on stage, grab the microphone, you know, look into the spotlight because you got to get used to that. It's going to blind you. You're going to pretend like it's not there. And he taught me how to hold the mic. He taught me how to move the stand, all the basics that, you know, most people, um, kind of like learn over time, but he basically gave me a little lowdown like immediately. Oh my God. That's, that's incredible. Basically. Oh my God. I remember my first open mic and people were friendly to me, but didn't tell me anything. And, uh, (laughs) so it was kind of a disaster, but I had fun. So it was all good. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So smart. I don't, I don't even but there's something to be said, right? Because there's something to be said about like being professional and being that kind, like kindness goes a long way. Right. Yes. And, uh, you know, it, you should never be afraid to ask, you know, it's like, Hey, it's my first time. What can you tell me? You know? And I think most people are generally positive and they want to help you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I feel like comedy. Okay. I'll save myself for later. Cause, um, you're so smart. I can't even ask my dumb questions, but I'm just going to do it anyways. Do you speak Vietnamese? I speak a dialect that's not very commonly used. Uh, the, 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 the main dialect I'm not that great at. Okay. So I'll skip that one. Um, so 
what advice? No, you, I mean, you, you, you can ask it. I mean, I'll tell you, <laughs> okay. I, I'm not afraid to say my Vietnamese sucks, you know, right. like. What does low deeds mean? Oh, butthole. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> I just, the question is my pause. Um, anyways, moving on. Okay. Um, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask some serious questions. Um, what do you think is the difference between like things that Vietnamese people find funny that Americans might not? And what are some things that Americans find funny that Vietnamese people might not find funny? That's very interesting. I think the gap, the, the gap, the boundary is getting closer and closer. Um, you know, cause I mean, if you look at Vietnam as a country it's becoming more, um, I wouldn't say democratic, but more entrepreneurial, right? So you have programmers and all these other, like these professional professionals that have popped up that didn't exist long ago. But I remember uh, my my biological parents watching Vietnamese comedy growing up, and it was it was I would describe it as like kind of theatrical uh, slapstick. So they use a lot of puns, they use a lot of voices, and uh, you know, cross dressing is very common. So like a you know a guy imitating a girl uh, and saying like silly stuff. So that's kind of like the the core uh, Vietnamese comedy that I saw my parents what? growing up. I'm not sure if it's changed much. I'm sh- I'm sure they're more acceptable of like different forms of comedy, but I I still think that's that's kind of like the bread and butter of Vietnamese comedy. Thank you so much for encapsulating that because I um, the closest thing that I know is like I took a bus to Vegas and they were playing Paris by Night. And uh, that's like my extent, the Vietnamese uh, media, I guess. But yeah, that's 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 a really great observation. Um, so, mm-hmm. in terms of like, I guess, okay, now it's me time. How can I transform myself into an Asian baby girl or an ABG for people who uh, don't know what it is? It does that mean like a almost like a sugar baby, but like an Asian version of it? Yeah, because like Vietnamese girls are really good. At, I don't know if it's is more common but southern california they're like everywhere like the most beautiful asian girls are pretty much vietnamese girls they have like long eyelashes they have like huge boobs and they look so <laughs> cute and they have like you know, nails done hair done everything did so uh, <laughs> do they do you guys have this in phoenix or no because I, I don't know um i mean there's a little bit of that uh the population the vietnamese population isn't that big in phoenix and, and here's the funny part growing up I've never dated a Vietnamese girl. This is so common. This is so interesting because, like, ethnic people just never date each other. Like, why is that? Like, what? What? what do we? Do they traumatize? Well, you? my upbringing was a little bit different, right? I wasn't surrounded by the Vietnamese community um, because I was a, you know, once I was taken in by a Jewish family, most people I was surrounded by were, were very diverse, and. and not of the Vietnamese <laughs> community. My siblings were very well integrated with the Vietnamese community. I kind of felt like an outsider, even when I would hang out with them sometimes. Yeah. What was that? Oh, are you the youngest or the oldest of your siblings or middle? I'm right in the middle. I'm right in the middle. So I have two, I have one older brother, one older sister, one younger brother, one younger sister. So, oh, you're exactly um, balanced in the middle. You're not. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of weird because Growing up, you're, you know, I was always too old to do certain things and too young to do certain things. So it was like, what can I do? <laughs> yeah. So what did you do growing up? Well, I ended up leaving. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, oh my god, that's crazy. So like, this is so interesting. So like, what advice would you give to like Asian kids who like are tired of their family? Like, would you recommend the same thing that you did, or would you advise something different? I mean, I think mine was circumstantial and very extreme. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I mean, I, and, and I do talks around the country to, to schools about about topics like this. And I mean, some of the advice I would give is, I mean, obviously for me, getting out of your comfort zone is very right. crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you a broader view on things, different perspectives and new experiences that you would never, you know, never experience. You know, I have friends that kind of, live and die in the same area, right? Like, you know, they're going to, they grew up in Long Beach. They'll never leave Long Beach. And, they, you know, they hang out with their friends in Long Beach. I take a different perspective in life. It's, you know, uh, you know, I want diversity. I want to uh, kind of experience everything. So it's like, I, you know, I would kind of go against the grain 
for most people. And, and most people, that may be tough. But I think when you do those sorts of things, you go through this journey of self-improvement and just like self-reflection that uh, you normally wouldn't get if you kind of just stayed, you know, took the easy route or, you know, mm-hmm. took the safe route. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much. Very philosoph- philosophical stuff. So um, what are your thoughts on like overcoming bombing and rejection? My, I mean, sometimes I love bombing, <laughs> to be honest. Why? Yeah. Uh, because, because once you're stuck in that hole, mm-hmm. you there's 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 literally nothing to lose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's there's true. nothing to lose. <laughs> it's funny because I talk. It's it's so similar to college students. It's like they're like when they're like looking for the first job or internship. They're like, what should I do? Like I need to apply this. I was like, I was like, I'm like, dude, you literally can't do anything wrong as a student. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can literally walk in, cut somebody out. <laughs> and say, give me a goddamn job, you know? Oh and uh, is that how you got your Washington? Like, you, there's nothing to lose. I, that's how I looked at it when I was in college. I literally walked in to my first internship and was like, "These are my skill sets. You need to hire me now." <laughs> and that was, and that's how it happened. Yeah. Holy shit! It's mm-hmm. okay. How did you mm-hmm. get into your Wall Street job? Please don't tell me that's how you got into your Wall Street. Job. That's how the, my first job was at a hedge fund, and I walked. I literally walked in. I literally walked in with my resume. Yeah. Oh my god. So <laughs> you really would advise other people to do the same thing that you do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, <laughs> oh bombing. I've learned more from bombing than than I've learned from like crushing a set. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think if you're not bombing mm-hmm. here and there, that means you're not pushing the border. You're not pushing your boundaries, or you're not pushing your comfort zone. You know? And uh, when I usually especially if you're doing open mics, like literally open mics should be, you should be bombing most of the time, (laughs) you know, like, because you you should be trying new stuff all the time or refining a set. So um, if it's a paid show or it's like a book gig, it's, you know, my philosophy is kind of like half and half. And that's kind of what my mentors have taught me is you kind of keep your core set in the beginning. You put your new jokes in the middle and then you end it with like something, you know, that works, you know? So, so, so even, even book gigs and paid gigs, you sh- should be trying new stuff that are a little bit more refined, but they're still pretty new. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I'm totally going to steal that and then uh, try it out. So, okay. Um, I need your advice. Cause, okay. Cause because I'm an Asian female, I'm always, always the odd one out. And I'm not sure if you can relate to this because of the environment that you're in. Um, but do you uh-huh. ever call your audience like me like humorless cunts or do you think it's your material that needs work like how do you deal with like assessing whether or not to cut a bit or go to another place to test it out that's interesting and there's there's different schools of thought on that you know there are people that say like there's there's never a bad audience it's always you you know and there's the other school of thought where it's like no there are some audience that are pretty shitty you know, and you just, you make the best of it. I'm kind of like in the middle. I've learned from a couple of people and I take this philosophy is I actually get excited not knowing what I'm getting into. Mm. Like I know certain comics that, that, that check out the audience. Sometimes they talk to the audience before the show and all this stuff. I actually like it when I walk into an audience and I have no expectation and I have no idea who it is or who they are. So do you go to just other places outside of your location, just test stuff out? I actually travel a lot. Yeah. So I do, I mean, Phoenix is definitely my home base, but I've done comedy for a good amount of time in Boston. Mm-hmm. I did it in LA, San Francisco. Um, so, I mean, those are, those are pretty good, you know, litmus tests mm-hmm. on testing your material in different, I guess, audiences, I guess. To answer your question, if you know if it's working, if you're, if you're testing, let's say a five minute set or a certain bit in, you know, let's say three, four or five different locations and you're getting some laughs, something is working. If you bomb all of them, then something most likely is not working. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, I want your advice on this because I tested out a bit that I thought was hilarious. Uh, I want to know what you think because you're Asian. I think you'll get it. So, um, I was banned from online, uh, an online dating site called The League. And I think it's because I connected my Twitter handle, Chinky Cunt, uh-huh. uh, because Cunty Chink was taken. All the good ones are yep. all taken. 
So uh, you think that's funny? Like, do you think the audience was racist for not laughing? And I don't think it, <laughs> it's a, uh, <laughs> oh, <I'm not> <laughs> oh, no, I think, look, I think boldness is always respected. That I learned that very at a very early age. Boldness is always respected, right? Like, even if someone disagree with you, they're like, you know, they still respect that boldness. Right, right, right. Now, now, You're so that, criticism. holy shit. Yeah. What did you, <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is very binary, right? Like either you own it a hundred percent and it. that's the way you, <laughs> yeah. Right. If you, if you own it a hundred percent and do. you think it's funny yeah. and other people think it's funny, that's, that's the important part. Other people have to think it's funny, but I think many times new comics try to go the extreme too fast. Like they go like, I'm going to do the darkest jokes because that's my style. Mm. And it's like a lot of comics don't even know their style until like three, four years in. Interesting. Right. Okay. And uh, uh, it's spoken about this. And I talked to guys like Nick Wera, who, who, who won last comic standing and uh, you know, uh, Leo flowers and some of these established comedians mm. where they, they understand the business side of comedy. Mm. And I, I'm not saying you have to, understand the business side of comedy immediately but eventually you're going to have to because half of comedy is business right it's bringing, bringing people butts into seats so you have to understand the aspect of it but i think in the way we've kind of like talked about it and and, and you know bounce back and forth ideas is like how do you brand yourself like what is your reputation right like it's like going in and saying yeah my uh i go by cunty chink immediately right even if it's funny the audience or the person may not want to laugh because they're not sure if it's appropriate to right and it's all about allowing your audience to laugh so it's like i mean i'll give you an example my first show i ever did my first book show it was about 100 people probably a little bit over 100 people and my first joke was a holocaust joke mm -hmm. and it got a ton of laughs but the booker came up to me and was like, if you ever put that in your set, me and probably most bookers will never book you. Oh, wow. And I didn't understand at first because I was like, it got a lot of laughs, yeah. you know, <laughs> but it's like, they're not willing to take that risk, um, you know, on, on a new comic when they can just place, you know, find someone safer that doesn't start off with a Holocaust joke. You know what I mean? Man, I have to scrap all my material. <laughs> But thank you. I mean, look, no, no, no. Scrapping is not the right word. Just put it in your back pocket, right? Yes. And, and the thing is, new comics don't get the benefit of the doubt. True. It's like, I mean, I, I know comics that say, I'm, I'm just like Anthony Jeselnik. And it's like, no, dude, Anthony Jeselnik spent 20 years refining his brand and his craft. You know what I mean? And he's well known. So he has the benefit of the doubt. And he's known for that. If you build that type of brand and that type of style, people expect that. So if someone's going to a, a Jesselnik show, that they expect that from him. When you walk in there or I walk in there, they don't know who the hell you are, right. you know, so they don't know whether they should laugh or not. So it's, it's not the audience's fault. It's just that that's the human emotion kind of like saying, you know, I don't know if this is right or wrong, even if it's funny. I, I don't want to take a risk of laugh, laughing at it. Yeah. Man, you might have just saved my comedy career right here. So thank you so much. <laughs> um, but you but I, like I said, you don't scrap it. Like even my Holocaust right. stuff, I think is a, is amazing. I have, I have one Holocaust bit that I think is brilliant. And I'm just putting it in my back pocket because when I get a sh my own show or my own special, I'm pulling it out. You know what I mean? Don't, don't waste it on this stupid podcast. Um, anyways. No. Um, <laughs> so um, in terms of like, because you're so eloquent and then like, do you feel like there's any, okay, this is my thing that annoys me, okay? Like comedians who don't take finances seriously, because I feel like I get very annoyed at starving artists because I feel like if you really love your craft, you would do anything possible to become better. And becoming better means that you have more resources to drive out to places and to meet people that mm -hmm. you want and to develop your set and to network with people, buy drinks for people, buy lunch for people, whatever it needs to do, right? So I feel like my philosophy is like, if you do want to be at the top of your field, you will have to hustle to the point where like you're having a lot of resources to do so. And um, you've worked at Wall Street. Um, you 
businesses. Um, what, I guess, how can I say in a neutral way now that I have to recoil back from how I branded myself? Um, how would you describe, like, do you feel like your Wall Street and business experience helped your comedy? Uh, what are your thoughts on being in this field that's like art and business, I guess? Yeah. Does, does that make any sense? Like, what are your thoughts? Oh, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. So the first part... The first part, absolutely yes. I think financially, right, it, I'm, I'm much further along than let's say a starving artist. Absolutely. So that gives me more freedom. I agree with you, when I go out, and I'm not like super rich by any means, you know what I mean? Uh, just FYI, and you know, everyone will probably know this now, is I just went through a divorce where I gave up 70% of everything I had. Oh my God, I'm so sorry to hear that. 70%, most people will give 50%, right? I gave 70% up. so. I literally came out with nothing because to me, like peace in mind, which was much more important than money. You know, yeah, I felt like I, I could recoup. I just take my money and go away. Like it's yeah. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. It was a, it was a pain and butt experience, but I mean, it, you know, uh, I wish I had that. I walked away with nothing basically. Like, um, but that's, that's another day. I mean, I literally walk away with nothing. I'm just rebuilding it. So, but even so, um, I think kindness and that, my style of networking works really well because to me, like I, mean, I buy comics drinks. I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do any of that Thank stuff. You. So I, okay. Oh my God. Sorry. Uh, I have to say this because I feel like the reason why I'm even doing this podcast is because I don't smoke, drink or like, you know, do any of the drugs. And this is my only way to make friends. So how do you even do that? Like, cause you're way further along. What advice do you have for me? It's okay. Man, this is like, <laughs> this podcast is completely reversed. It's fine though. It's fine though. Cause, cause I hope, it, I hope it'll help you and I hope it'll help your listeners. I think po doing a podcast is a really good way to network. That's why I'm doing the podcast. I mean, we got, but, but to me, and everyone has a different um, take on it. To me, I'm similar to what Dave Chappelle said, it, you know, is like, I don't, Dave Chappelle once said, I don't want to release anything until it's a final product. That's why he only releases one special like every couple of years, let's say, instead of, you know, someone else releasing a special twice a year or whatever. You know, when I look at my podcast, I want it to be the highest quality possible, the best product I can release. So like we've just had Joe Kimmel on there, Tony Tripoli, who used to open for Joan Rivers. We just had Richard Pryor Jr., the son of the most famous comic in the world ever. Right. So um, I want... <laughs> Tell us about your podcast, please. Or continue. To. Yeah, so it's, it's called The Padded Room. We say keep your helmets on because we talk about pretty much everything. Everything except politics and religion. Perfect. And anything goes. Uh, we're pretty, we're pretty, uh, we name drop a lot. You know, we just don't care. Because my co-host used to open for Paul Rodriguez. He's been a traveling comic for, you know, 25 years. And, you know, his, his mom is dying of cancer. So, like, think of him in that situation. He just doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, he's got, big, he's got bigger shit to deal with. So, it works really well. And then, for me, an up-and-coming comic, you know, still building up my brand. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, this comes from the Wall Street and the business side is, and this is advice for you, is you got to find a way to, to, to build rapport very quickly. And what I mean by that, it's like, you look at, when I say networking, I think the most important skill in networking is something called calibration. It's like you have to be able to calibrate according to your situation, to the person, to this. So I'll give you an example. If a person is coming in and they're, they're, they're smoking, you know, you know, smoking weed or whatever, you got to talk about something that they care about. You know what I mean? Mm, yes. You don't have to smoke it, but, uh, and, and at the end of the day, maybe they're not for you. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't, I don't hang out with a lot of comics because I don't want to do math. I don't want to be around math. I don't want to be around cocaine. You know what I mean? But calibration is really important because it's, it, if you know how to calibrate properly, you'll be so much better when you go to different locations and, and states doing comedy and you'll build rapport much faster when you meet comics and bookers. Now the business side being on wall street helps me because I understand, I mean, I've run businesses of 20 years, mm -hmm. so I understand their pain points, right? Mm -hmm. So when I talk to bookers and owners of clubs, I don't talk to them from a, as a comic. 
because I think, I think eventually I'll be funny. You know what I mean? But I talk to them from the aspect of like, Hey, how's business going? Like, you know, what kind of shows are you throwing? Like, you know, are you have slow days, this and that, how are you marketing your comedy club? So like the way they talk to me is much different than anyone talking to a comic because they instantly know that I am, I'm very business oriented and professional. So, and I've seen a lot of, I've said, talk to bookers. Many of them will say they would rather deal with someone that's professional and reliable and less funny than someone that's like amazingly funny, but does not understand the other aspects of being a professional comic. Oh my God. Thank you so much for saying that because I think, uh, I book people on podcasts. Sorry, it's just a rant, but even if you're not good, even if you just show up, uh, you're going to go on. Right. Cause it's like, you're, you're, you're there, you get it. Thank you for being freaking reliable because hundred percent. Yeah. It's so important. It's more That's than happened being- to me on several occasions on, on shows that I should not even been there. Like I had no business being there. But I go there, like, if, if it's a show I really want to get on, and I'll give, you, I'll give you one example. There's a show in Long Beach that's run by uh, a comic named Felice G. Probably runs I, one of the best I, shows I've, I've seen. She's on the podcast, yes. I love her. Yeah. Yes, I love her. She runs a show at the Federal Underground in downtown Long Beach. And it's always a sold-out show. Amazing crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has followers. Uh, she pays her comics. Like I went to her first show and I didn't get a spot, but I went in the green room and I networked with the, you know, comics. I was asking her, how can I help? Is there anything I can do? Market it or whatever. I stayed afterwards. I greeted everybody that came in and out. I said, thanks for coming to the show. Even though I wasn't even on there. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, thank you. You know, that's so kind of you. But she looked at that and was like, that is and she saw my reel, obviously. So um, she knew I was at least capable of getting on stage. Yeah. And the reel is awesome. By once, the way. yeah, on YouTube, I was like, "Yep, he's." I'm gonna ask him for for to come. Here. Yeah, and and so look, you, you, the caveat is I've only been doing comedy for five months. What? I've been o- I've been only been doing for five months. But oh diff- different people have different learning curves, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like I learn it a lot faster than a lot of people. Um, because of the skill sets I learned from wall street is I have really thick skin. Mm -hmm. I can bomb and just analytically objectively look at what I did wrong. And I kind of, I go like, ah, shit, I bombed. But then I get over it like 30 seconds later. I feel a lot of people aren't like that. I feel like their egos get in the way. I think there's no value in having your ego get in the way. And that's what wall street taught me. I mean, you know, if you think about wall street, everybody has huge egos, you know, but for me, when I was on Wall Street raising capital and doing all this stuff, like it, it, I was much more productive when, you know, I kind of kept my ego aside. So, but back to your point is Felice basically looked at that and said, I'm going to put you on my next show because like you're super reliable. I love that. That's perfect. So thank you. And and the people on our shows have like 10 to 40 years of experience. Like, and it's like, you know, at one point I was like, what am I doing here? You know, but sometimes it works that way. Yeah, Wall Street motherfuckers. Um, so- <laughs> yes. Yeah, quit, quit your, uh, you know, put your double six-figure job on Wall Street and go do stand-up comedy. That's the yeah, do stand-up comedy. So, um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. I was going to ask two questions. Okay, I guess the first question is because I'm in Orange County right now, um, and two actually comedy bars are closing. Um, one was Carmen Bar, and then one was... Uh, in the process of being saved, I guess. Um, what advice would you give for like failing? I mean, I don't even want to say failing. Just like what I guess advice would you have for business owners running comedy clubs to keep it going? Because I feel like if all these open mic places close, then where are the comedians going to go? You know, we, we can't all be workshop people going for corporate, right? Uh, trying to fill the diversity quota. So what would you say about comedy clubs that are closing? Like what would you advise them to uh, save it. All right. So there are some technical difficulties. We're going to wait for him to come back. We're going to just wait till he comes in, but he's freaking amazing. Um, you can check out, uh, his podcast on Pat room. I won't even be mad if you leave my podcast right now and just, uh, check him out. But he has a really, really professional real guys. 
Um, just check out Kai Nguyen on YouTube. Uh, and we're back. Oh, we're back. All right. I was just saying filler words. I was telling them to get off my podcast, go to your podcast, because I won't even be mad. <laughs> so awesome. And uh, just telling them to look at your YouTube reel. So I don't know. What's the last thing you remember me saying? We were talking about like quitting my Wall Street job and going to do comedy. Oh, okay. okay. So I was like leading right to like this part because there's several, a couple of comedy clubs like closing. One is already going to move. And the other one is a process of being endangered. So as a business mm-hmm. person, what would you advise like stand-up comedy open mics that are closing and comedy bars that are closing? What should they do besides hiring you to turn it around? Like what, what, what was a problem that caused them to shut down and how can they keep comedy going? I mean, that's tough to say, but most of the time it's just because the comedy portion is just kind of, uh, they didn't shut down because of the, open mic or the comedy portion. You know right. what I'm saying? Usually a business is, look, if a business is relying on the comedy portion on a slow night to survive, <laughs> they're not running the business properly. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's gotta be a business uh, that like a bar or restaurant that's already on good footing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like I actually just got a new show uh, at a place called Kimmy's in, in Phoenix. So I just threw the first inaugural uh, show I'm throwing the second one December 10th and Kimmy has been around for like 12 years. She is super, super business oriented Mm -hmm. and uh, she just bought a new stage and a new uh, platform and lighting and all this stuff. It's like amazing. It's amazing. So she, she understands to invest in that, but that's not what she relies on. You know, you know what I mean? She built the business over a decade. So I feel like a lot of these other uh, these shows that are closing down is because they're in lo- and they're in uh, venues that are struggling to begin with. So it, it's a much deeper problem. Um, it could just be that uh, they're not adapting to the market. You know, they're not doing social media or whatever. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of anecdotes for that. Um, one anecdote I give you is in Boston, there used to be a, a, a little area called Little Italy. And when I first moved to Boston 10 years ago, Little Italy was booming. It was the place you went to if you wanted to get Italian desserts or like a romantic dinner with a girlfriend or your family. And over time, it kind of, and Boston even tried to protect it. Boston had rules where if you were a franchise, you couldn't open inside Little Italy, right? So it was all mom and pop, like Italian restaurants. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, I noticed that there was a Mexican cantina that moved in and I was like, Oh, uh-oh. and then like dead ass, not even joking about two years ago, the first Asian nail salon moved in little Italy. And I was like, that's it. Little Italy is done. <laughs> right? done. Oh, like if an Asian nail salon is in your, is in your neighborhood oh. it is no longer the reputation that it, it holds before. So um, what happened was a lot of them didn't really evolve with the economy. It was like there was a lot of gentrification, a lot more business professionals, and they weren't catering to them. They were catering to the, to the old, old dudes, the older crowd that, like, you know, are very old school. Um, you know, these, these guys probably, you know, the, the new crowd of millennials and business professionals were probably looking for, like, stuff like Starbucks and, you know, and uh, Sprouts and, you know, Whole Foods and right. stuff like that. Oh, my God. And I feel that's the same for, for – for, uh, comedy clubs and um you know restaurants and bars i mean it's it's one it's one of the top uh toughest industries to be in is restaurant and bars so and comedy clubs so what do you feel like is the death now if any i'm I'm just so curious what's the canary in the coal mine for a comedy club if any i think complacency i would say i don't i don't know the exact answer to that Um, i just say i just say complacency you know, I think uh, if you look at a place that's been long running, like the comedy store, right? It's world world famous, mm-hmm. but it's been around for so long. You know, um, Polly Shore's is a mother owns it, and Polly Shore runs it. But that's interesting. Okay. Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, um, yeah. His his family runs it. You know, they they change it up all the time. I mean, they're always. If you look on the Instagram. They're on Instagram all the time. There's someone videotaping, walking around, saying hi to people, um, you know. And so they do a lot of promotional stuff. They have a lot of, uh, of, of 
like mainstay, like core mm-hmm. um, shows. And then they also throw, there's a show called These Nuts, you know, that runs in the belly room and stuff like that. Now that may be a, 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 not a, a great example because, you know, they have a reputation. Right. But I mean, at the same time, they still got to make money, you know? And if you're in LA, rent's still pretty high. Then you look at, let's say Orange County, mm-hmm. where rent's probably still pretty high, yeah. but they don't have that. They don't have that draw of, hey, this is a comedy club. This is like a world famous comedy club with, you know, with owned by a famous comedian that has a lot of connections, you know. So it's kind of like building a reputation over time. And I don't believe a lot of those bars and restaurants and comedy clubs do it properly. And again, the other thing I I think, too, is is just location, location, location. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a show at the the Laugh Factory downtown Long Beach, but I'm not sure that's the best place to put a Laugh Factory. No, no offense to Jamie Masada, but I'm not sure that's the best place to put it. Interesting. This is very fascinating, guys. I okay, Kai. I feel like this is what's gonna happen. Release a podcast, okay? Uh, one, you're gonna get girls. Um, number two, um, you're gonna get hired for business coaching, and then number three, uh, you're gonna get hired for comedy because uh, <laughs> uh, so, in that order, in that order, because that's the, maybe all in one. You- Who knows? <laughs> Maybe you'll meet a booker who wants to marry you and also get her business going. Who knows, right? Um, <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. This is awesome. Thank you so much. So, like, what are the topics that you enjoy talking about in your stand-up comedy? You know, what's funny is that I, when I first started out, and I'm saying that, you know, five months deep, <laughs> you know, from when I first started comedy. <laughs> yeah, I'm one month into it, so, yeah, I guess. But I, I would say the amount of time I put into it is, is much more than most people would because my, my work ethic basically came from you know, my Jewish family and like my work on Wall Street, right? My, my, my work ethic with comedy was the same thing was I wasn't going to half-ass it, you know? Yeah, um, so I've invested a lot of time in, into it. I would say in the beginning, it was kind of like easy, low-hanging fruit. I mean, as an Asian male comic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, dick jokes, obviously. I, it was funny because one of my mentors basically said, he looked at my set and he said, all right. I'm going to allow you one dick joke in your five minute set. You get to pick one dick joke and that's it. And I chose, I had to pick my best dick joke and that was it. I had to come up with all brand new material. Now, most of my material uh, has kind of evolved. You know, I talk a lot about my biological dad, stupid stuff he would say. The most famous one is that, you know, I say like every parent has this crazy saying, you know, my dad's was, what the hell? You know, and it was like, Bio. you know so and I, I never knew what it meant but i knew i was gonna get my ass whooped every time i heard that you know <laughs> so uh so it's kind of like i've kind of branded in that direction but but i'm kind of fortunate in the sense that because of my background i get to kind of tiptoe that fine line mm-hmm. where i can do like asian jokes and jewish jokes yeah it's, it's almost it, some people have said like that's so unfair you know what i mean it's like, <laughs> yeah. well you know it is what it is Vietnamese and Jewish humor. Yeah, double the S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it really depends on my audience. So it goes back to calibration. If I'm in an audience of all Asian people, then I would differentiate myself, differentiate myself as Vietnamese. Like I'd say I'm Vietnamese and blah, blah, blah. If I was just in a, in a general audience, I would just say Asian and Jewish. You know what I mean? Because it gives me more leeway to say certain things. That's hilarious. So what do you think the Asian audience finds funny versus the white audience? Do you feel like there's a difference? I think hmm, that's hard to say. I mean, if you look at famous fem- uh, uh, Asian comics um, that really connect with the crowds, let's say Joe Coy and mm-hmm. Ken Jeong and um, Ali Wong, mm-hmm. it's, about, it's about talking about the different nuances of each uh, Asian race, right? Like Joe Coy goes slipper, you know, you, you, you grew up, <laughs> you're Filipino, your parents hit you with a slipper growing up, you know? And, you know, obviously, uh, Ali Wong is like mixed and her, her husband is mixed. So she had the for one. Yeah. fortunate opportunity of talking about every single race, <laughs> you know, jungle Asian and, and, and city Asian, or whatever she calls it. I think, I think Asians, um, like the Asian audience really enjoy talking about the, the first generation, you know, parents, 
growing up with, with, with first generation parents, right? Because it's kind of almost nostalgic because you, we're kind of losing focus of that. Yes. We're kind of losing a little bit of that because what is it like th- third, fourth generation now? And you kind of lose a little bit of that because when I was growing up, my parents would whoop my ass, you know, <laughs> if I, if I said anything, you know, if I talked against them or didn't listen to them. And uh, I think that's still kind of funny. That's still funny today. But a lot of them haven't experienced that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, wow. Um, that's incredible. There's so much good stuff. Thank you so much. I can't believe you're doing this for free as a business person. But I, I will take anything. I'm, you know, so, but this is so good. Thank you so much. Don't, don't sell yourself short. Okay. So, um, do you feel, okay, because I am, I don't, okay, I, I don't want to make gender race an excuse but I am an Asian female and I feel like I have the gift of surprise because people don't know what they're expecting. But I do feel like mm-hmm. men and women respond, respond, respond very Do you ever go into like an all female, a majority female audience or do you feel like it's pretty much male dominated or like even crowds? Like what has been uh, your experience? My experience, most audience in general is pretty even, if not skewed towards women. You know, and, uh, really? it, yeah, I yeah. I mean, think, no, 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 no. We're not talking, let's exclude open mics. Let's exclude open mics. We're okay. talking about a book show that has a real audience or a paid show or in a comedy club. Generally, it's the girl that takes the guy out or girl, girl's night out. You know, if you think about like boys, they don't go, bro, let's go to a comedy club all together with all 12 of us. You know what I mean? Like, it's generally girls and women that would do that, or they would drag their boyfriend with them, you know? So, uh, my mentors have taught me, like, you want to, when you're, when you're, like, crafting jokes, why not craft it for the 99%, right? Mm. So, if you do any jokes that uh, divide it, so let's say, I have a joke that I sometimes use, it talks about equal pay for, for genders, and it's, <laughs> and it's a... Uh, is not uh is not where you think it would go it is there's a twist in there i know that joke is very divisive like it divides the crowd immediately and i only use it sparingly and i only use it when i have already won the crowd over but i would never never open with that why would you use a joke that only hits 50 percent of the crowd Mm. immediately you know what i mean like your first couple of jokes should be really funny and should hit 99% of the crowd. Maybe one person is like, I'm offended by that or whatever. Well, I don't get that, you know, but you're hitting 99%. And, and in an ideal world, all your jokes should be hitting 99%. And that's when you get into like clean comedy and all this stuff that people go, oh, that's so boring, this and that. But that's how you get booked. And that's how you hit 99% of the audience. That's amazing. Oh my God. Just being, this is, this is amazing. This is an amazing podcast. Uh, because you're in it. But even after saying that, like, you know, that does get boring after a while, right? You want to get more edgy. You want to get darker. You want to get, tell your stories. So, I mean, obviously, you know, if I tell a Jewish joke, many times it won't hit 99% of the crowd. It might hit 70% or 60%. And that's okay as long as I don't start off with that. That's awesome. Man, I just threw out the complete script that I was going to ask because this is so fascinating. So, okay. Uh, are, uh, okay, what are the advantages of dating an Asian guy? Because I've talked about it, but let's hear from you. Um, what are the advantages of dating <laughs> an Asian dude, but who's Jewish inside? God, it's so rare. So just the advantages of dating an Asian guy, that's it? I mean, do you want to add to it? No, no, no. It, it, I'm just trying to clarify the question. You're saying what are the advantages of... Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do advantages and disadvantages so we hit 99% of the crowd, as you say. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer them. I don't know. Because uh, that's generalizing Asian guys, right? Oh, yeah. um, like, do you feel Jewish? Like, uh, this is my question. Like, do you feel more... Should I rename this podcast to, like, Jewish humor, basically? <laughs> the Asian Jew <laughs> comes on. Asian Jew. Oh my god, that'd be hilarious. Asian Jew humor. Yeah. How many of you guys um, are there in the world? That's like the smartest combination you can add. Literally. Yeah, some people some people have kind of some of the comics have, uh on my podcast have made fun of it. Like off the air, they're like, How are you not like the CPA of like the biggest corporation in the world? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> 
Uh, like your combination with your background and work ethic. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to say, like, it's hard for me to say the advantage of dating an Asian guy because I've never really identified. I've just identified as, like, very culturally diverse. Um, Which is, yeah. I've, I, I've identified myself through my experiences, not really through my race. You know what I mean? Now I have to rename this whole podcast. But this is this is such good stuff. I can rename it to anything and then be good. Um, who are some, who are your favorite comedians? Oh, that's easy. I mean, I have the oldies, like George Carlin. Uh, I mean, I don't want to call him old, but Dave Attell. It's kind of old school. Uh, I grew up watching uh, his show. What was it? Uh, Insomniac when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I like David, the old David Cross stuff. It can mean 100%. My favorite comic in the world is Dave Chappelle. And I actually mm-hmm. met him once at oh, LAX, okay. Okay. Which, is, How is which is a really funny story. But <laughs> it's a really you funny story, by the way. Huh? You're going to save it for a stand-up? Because I don't mind. I would totally just save it. For oh, no, 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 no. I have a bit on it, but, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, I met him, it was, like, 1999 or something, and I met him at the LAX, and he had just released Killing Him Softly, the HBO special, that I think is the best of all time. And uh, I'd memorized it word for word, and I saw him coming out of his limo, and I was like, oh, shit, it's Dave Chappelle. You know, I run over there, and I'm like, hi, I shake his hand. He wasn't fa- that famous at the time, so there was, like, no crowd around him. And, um, you know, he had a white limo driver, so I kind of made fun of that. I was like, oh, is that Chip? You know, this, that. And uh, <laughs> we t- he started talking, you know, I was like, what are you working on? He's like, I'm working on a, on a, on a TV show, which ended up being, you know, uh, the Chappelle show. Um, oh my God. and, uh, so we took, we took, I, I had my ex-girlfriend at the time take a photo, but she used one of those old clickety Polaroid, uh, you know, cameras, you know, the, the one where you have to wind up. Yes. So, so we, she takes a picture with me and Dave Chappelle and, you know, we, we, we part ways and I tell everybody, I'm like, yo, I just met Dave Chappelle, got a photo with him. I'm developing it right now. Like, you know, the days where you still had to develop yeah. and, uh, I was even bragging to the guy at like CVS where I was developing it at. Right. I was like, dude, you're developing a picture of me and Dave Chappelle. You know, like, so, <laughs> so I, th- I throw this party and, uh, I pick up the film and I, and I open it to show everybody, and it's literally a picture of my face and a black silhouette. <laughs> because my ex forgot to turn on the flash. So the angle of the oh light, it was just, oh it could have been any black dude. <laughs> and no, like, literally nobody, but nobody believed me. <laughs> oh, my God. Did you Photoshop it in? Next? No, this is a long time ago, so I don't even have the photo anymore. I'm so mad I don't have it, but that story stuck with me. I'm still working on a bit for that, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things where if I got to meet him again, I'd tell him that story, and he'd probably not remember, but, you know, it's just it's just a funny little story. But I love him. I think the up-and-comers that I love, Andrew Schultz, um, killing yeah, the game right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just met uh, um, Akash you know, who's on the flagrant two with Andrew, big fan of his. I'm actually a lot of big fans now of like, I, I, it's not, I don't know how to describe it. Not like super, super successful comics, but they're like, they're like mid tier comics. Like that's not the best word for it, but like Neil Nanda is a, is a, is a I, I like to watch his stuff. Christy. I mean, obviously uh, Anthony Jeselnik, um, cause his style is so much different um, than anybody else's. Some smaller comics. I mean, Angela Johnson. I mean, not small. She's big now, but, you know, they were small when I started following them. I saw her in San Francisco doing her bit. She was incredible. Yeah, this was like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can name a lot. I mean, Neil uh, Neil Brennan, right? Yeah, what do the Vietnamese people think about her bit? They think it's funny. I think think it's funny. I mean, I I think anyone that is not Vietnamese doing an accent of Vietnamese is funny, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that's really, that's really, and it has to be the timing of it too. Like if you did it now, it would be less funny, you know, but at the time when she did it, it was like a Latina doing an an Asian female nail salon worker, you know, accent is just, was just totally from left field, you know? And, uh, I remember, uh, speaking of timing, I remember, uh, Russell Peters had that special on, on YouTube, Mm-hmm. where uh and it still sticks with me um 
where he does like the Asian accent and he goes, your mother so fat that when she jumped for joy, she gets stuck, you know? And if you did that now, it wouldn't be as funny. But when he did it, it was just like, what the hell that came out of left field, you know? And it was so hilarious. And that you, you get it. All these, all these comics, not all of them, but many of these comics had like that moment, you know, that made it viral, that made it funny, that made it like easy to share with other people. Wow. So much good stuff, man. Uh, what advice would you give for people in general? For people or just for comics? Maybe people in comics because you're, you're so smart. God, it's just like, uh, yeah, just general things like com comedians, how they, how they get started. Like just, yeah, any, any advice you would share before we share you and stalk you? <laughs> so I'll start with like people in general. I mean, I wouldn't say I follow um, Gary Vee religiously, but I, I agree with his, like, yeah. he says a lot of this statement because he's, he's also an immigrant um, and came from an immigrant family is that he has, he's just grateful. Right. And to me, I don't drink coffee. I don't drink, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't drink alcohol. I don't do drugs I mean, or hardly. For me, hmm? cause I, I'm, I just don't, any of the substances and I feel so uncool when I'm hanging out at open mics but like I know if I do that I'm gonna be like a freaking opium addict so might as well no man no dude you are cool you just don't fucking realize it is it uh, stringers or uh, slingers yeah where he's like you're so you're so money you don't even know it <laughs> like trust me you're cool dude like you just have to realize you're cool you know and it, I call it the Brad Pitt syndrome guys dude I go to a lot of these I go, I go to a lot. I don't have that many comic friends because, you know, a lot of the comics in this scene do a lot of drugs or they have a lot of personal issues, mental illness, et cetera. So I hang out with a very specific, certain specific comics uh, and very few of them, but I call it the Brad Pitt syndrome. Like, it, you know, Brad Pitt, when he walks into a room, he doesn't have to announce he's Brad Pitt, right? He, everyone knows he's Brad Pitt. He let himself you know? go. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> We're talking about Brad Pitt at his peak, you know, okay. or like, you know, a billionaire, a billionaire doesn't need to walk into the room and say, Hey, I'm a billionaire, you know? So like when you're talking about coolness, mm -hmm. I think there's this facade that a lot of people pull, you know, where it's like, you know, they think like it's, it's cool to like shit on other comics or, you know, this and that, or hang out and okay, click. And that's video? all fine. Okay. Sorry. Huh? I had to just like, before I forget, cause you, good stuff and I let you talk and then I forget what I was going to say um, mm -hmm. so when you say shitting on other comics what do you define as comedian etiquette oh man it's different everywhere but I think um, honestly dude just be, be humble down to earth and just be kind. I don't, I don't understand the need to shit on other comics. Okay. And uh, is, I, guess, I guess my question is like, how do you draw the line between, cause sometimes like, you know, when you hand off your mics to other comics, it's okay to just joke around it. You know, that's fine. I don't mind it. Right. But okay. Like, here, here, here's my rule. Like What's here's, the difference between funny? Here's and my rule. Okay. Here's, here's my rule. And it doesn't, not everyone, you know, agrees with this, but right. there's only two ways two reasons you should be shitting on a comic. One is if you're fucking, if your if your joke is fucking funny, like mm. where if someone shit on me and it was so funny, I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> wow, you just shit on me and I'm laughing like hell, you know? And, and number two, number two is if you know them, if you have rapport with them, you know what I'm saying? And you're, you're just riffing, you know? And they're like, oh man, yo dog, you know? And, and, and you know I guess the third rule like is you had a conversation with them privately or like you feel like, you yeah, you just gotta have, you, you gotta be on the same page. You gotta be on the same page. Right. Okay. Like they, and number three is if you're going to shit on people, you better be able to take that shit back. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. Like you have to be able to, to take a joke as well. Cause I've seen people shit on me and then I start shitting on them and then they get mad. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, it, it, I, I kind of say like, if you shit in the sandwich, you eat it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're, you know. What are they shit on you for? Well, you're like, just, yeah, what, for being Asian, Jewish? Like, what, what do they shit on you for? Oh, most of the time it's for being Asian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they'll make fun of me for not being able to pronounce people's name right, or 
I mean, you know, small dick, you know, I was like, Oh man, I haven't heard that one before. You know, like, like, and I, I remember this very clearly because I remember uh, there was a comic, a seasoned comic and uh, he walked into a show once and I made fun of him cause I thought it was funny. And he goes, bro, that wasn't even fucking funny. If you're going to shit on me, like make it a dope joke. And he like went off, off and off. And I was like, you know what? Like I felt bad at first. And I was like, I felt bad at first. And I was like, you know what? You're, you're fucking right, dude. That was an unoriginal joke. I apologize. Next time I'm shitting on you, it's going to be a damn good joke. <laughs> you know? So, but at the same time, you got to be able to take it too. You know, you got to be able to dish it and take it. So I'm not a lot of comics can do that. So and, and wait so last thing last thing on that most people do it most comics do it because they're nervous or they don't have good material ah, interesting yeah because i had a discussion with a female comic because she's really good and i asked her like because so many male comics shit after shit on her like after she does her set so i was just asking her mm-hmm. in the interview like how do you deal with it and she's like well i don't care because that means they don't have material like they're just wasting their like five exactly me. So exactly that. thank you for saying exactly that. yeah yeah, try doing that on a book show with me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll make an entire set shitting on you. You know, like, it's, so it's like, and it's not even worth it, to be honest, you know? So, yeah, most of the time, your 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 friend comic is is absolutely correct. It's usually they're insecure or they don't have, you know, enough material or good jokes. Thank you for that. Uh, sorry, continue. Because you have so much good stuff. I know that if I don't interrupt you, I'm just going to let you go and then not have my question. Well, oh, no, go, no, 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 that's... that's <laughs> That's totally fine. Um, I think, I mean, the advice I would give is just be be grateful, right? We're talking about Gary V. Like, you know, for me, because I never use caffeine and all that stuff, is like, what is your feel, you know? My feel is gratefulness. Like, I wake up and I'm grateful that I'm even here. People are like, oh, you're so lucky. I was like, I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, my life is luck. You know, the work ethic and all that stuff, yeah, that was instilled in me, but I'd say 90% of it was luck, man. Like timing and all that stuff being, you know, taken in and adopted and taught, that's all luck. You can't roll that dice. I got a lucky roll. So I wake up and I'm very grateful. Any, And people feel that. That's kind of like, it becomes kind of like your reputation, your brand, right? When someone puts me on a show, I'm always like, oh, I really appreciate it, you know, this and that. And it's just that appreciation that really rubs off on people. Number two is you just be kind. Like, I hype up other comics all the time. I'm like, this guy's the funniest, you know, comic, West Side of the Mississippi, this and that. He runs this podcast. It's just like knowing how to host is a really good skill set. And really hyping up another comic is a really Mm -hmm. good skill set. Because why shit on them when I can hype them up? Because what people don't understand is... And this is just in life in general. This is life in general. Uh, And it's one of the biggest mistakes people make. By putting someone else down, it doesn't make you get higher. You understand? Mm -hmm. Yes. Because then they just just remember the other comedian set. And they're like, oh, yeah, that uh, that comic, even if they hated them, they're just like, oh, I'm thinking about it, right? They're thinking less about you. Yeah. Honestly, honestly, it's a cheap laugh. And and if if you want that to be your brand, go for it, you know? You're going to, your, your opening, your opening joke is always going to be shitting on another comic. That's a terrible opening joke. I'd like, we're talking about 99%. That is not 99%, you know? So I think it's a terrible way of doing it. So it's just be kind. Like if, if I hype somebody else up, like, look, this was even in business and life. You are who your reputation is who you associate yourself with. Right. If I'm shitting on other comics, that makes me look really bad. You know what I mean? But if I'm hyping up all these other comics and they're doing well, I'm doing well, it makes me look good. And that's where ego comes in and a lot of comics can't overcome that hurdle because they have this ego and this, they think it's a competition and this and that. And a lot of them say, oh, I understand that. So, I mean, that's just the way I think it should work is just be kind, be grateful, and just be a good person. And then obviously be funny. Funny is definitely a big part of it, but not everything. But I think nowadays, um, you know, I think a lot of new comics, they hang around with other new comics and they're getting bad advice. Um, So it's, you know, for me, I'm pretty picky on who I associate myself with. I mean, I'm very, um, I say hi to everybody for the most part, but 
by association, I'm kind of picky and choosy um, who I associate myself with. Yes, absolutely. So thank you so much for this. How can we book you? How can we stalk you? How can we uh, uh, basically uh, give you, or I don't know what you're looking for. I feel like the girls will come after you. The business people are trying to hire you. (laughs) How can we get in touch? Um, Instagram is Viet for Life. Viet for Life. So V-I-E-T-P-H-O-L-I-F-E. Um, that's also my Facebook and, uh, that's also my website is www.vietforlife.com. Um, it has all the information on there. And then I run, um, the padded room podcast. Um, it's Instagram is the padded room pod. Um, and that's where, I mean, we're just got started probably a couple weeks ago, but it's really high quality stuff. And it's, it's, you know, it's, we're getting really, really interesting people on there. Like one of the people I'm bringing on there too is uh, my best friend, Jonas Neubauer, who's the seven-time World Tetris champion. What? Like he's like a he's like a super celebrity, you know. And he's so humble and he's so funny. It's like he could be a comedian if you wanted to. But uh, uh, yeah, he's he's like he's so popular that there's an emoji of his face in China. Are you serious? Oh my god! Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a it's a photo that I edit. It's a picture that I edited in college okay. when we what, went to college what, together. What do, I, what do I Google? I need to do this now. I'm sorry. Uh, this is too cool. Just look up Jonas Neubauer. Uh, J O N A S N E U B A U E R. I think emoji or something. I mean, I I could even send it to you, but it's literally the <laughs> yeah, a picture I that I. Um. <laughs> it's a it's a picture of his face with his two his eyes going in, looking in different directions. Oh my god! Um, yeah, people go to his podcast because it's obviously amazing. VF Life, guys! Oh my god, thank you so much. It's been one of the best podcasts I've ever had the pleasure of. Thank you so much. Uh, you were amazing. I hope to have you on future podcasts. Of course, yeah, that was I had a lot of fun. Okay, thank you so much.